Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Ever have that feeling on retreat? It's like, if I can just get to the Dharma talk. (laughs) It's good, you're still here. It's not easy. It helps when the weather's like this, huh? Yeah, yeah, yesterday was rough. <laughs> it's a very auspicious day, as uh, as Sharon was saying. Today uh, is Vesaka Puja. Vesak is uh, the name of the, this particular month in spring, uh, April, May, and it's the full moon of this month. And that's the day that uh, the Buddha's uh, birth uh, enlightenment and passing, all three of those events are celebrated in the Buddhist world. This day commemorates those monumentous events. And um, we were we were talking about it earlier, and some calendars have it tomorrow, some calendars have it today. I think it depends on the, on the tradition. <clears throat> but the moon's full tonight, and it's supposed to be full again tomorrow as well. So. Good time to be on retreat. I think many of you are probably familiar with the uh, one of the legends about the Buddha's awakening. And after leaving the palace where he grew up and wandering and practicing these really intense um, ascetic practices for six years, um, he finally recognized that uh, denying the body and this kind of intense mortification was not the way to freedom. And so things came back into balance a little bit. And then he sat beneath the Bodhi tree with this really powerful determination, this resolve, you know, may my bone, may my flesh wither until there's just skin and bones left. And, you know, but I will attain the highest there is to be attained for a human, for a human being. And it's said, the legend goes, that that night, sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, he was beset by these uh, forces, these demons in his own mind that get personified as this figure, Mara, the tempter. And so over the course of the night, these powerful forces assail him, forces of temptation, of craving and desire and pleasure, uh, forces of fear, armies, and horrible, uh, you know, visions of ghouls and terrible smells, and uh, weapons and fire and thunder and rain and earthquakes—just all of this intense energy challenging his uh, stability. And it's said that the last of these, the last kind of challenge was doubt. That Mara, again, this personification, as it's understood of this force in his own mind, kind of the last ditch effort to to shake the Buddha's determination to wake up was, who do you think you are to be sitting here waking up? And his answer, his response, 
is this mudra that we see in so many of the statues of this gesture of touching the earth. This profound sense of belonging and connection to this planet. And with that, the host of Mara, all of the demons and fears and temptations and doubts kind of were cleared away. And then this awakening progresses throughout the night. So this, this particular day commemorates in part that great awakening. Greg said last night, this, this path is not an easy way to go. If we've been here for a few days, you you can verify that yourself. It's not an easy way to go. The Buddha said it goes against the stream. That was his way of putting it. It goes against the currents, the currents of society, the currents of our own minds. It's interesting to look at the early texts from more than two millennia ago and read what the Buddha said when he was contemplating teaching. He said, no one's going to understand. He said, this generation delights in attachment, enjoys attachment, relishes control. (laughs) So here we are in the world where the forces of domination control and oppression are destroying the very substrate of this beautiful planet that the Buddha called upon to say, I have a right to be here because I'm part of this earth. I belong in that same way that we all belong. This generation that delights in attachment, that ignores limits, that lives in a delusion that there's no such thing as cause and effect, that we can put as much carbon into the atmosphere as we want and not have to worry about it. So here we are in Barrie, Massachusetts, practicing loving kindness with so many challenges in our world, so many problems that we're facing as a species. I think this practice really holds Uh, a piece. It's not the whole answer, not by any means, but I think it holds a very important piece of the puzzle. This capacity we have to transform our relationship with the forces in our own minds and the forces in society that we see wreaking so much havoc to transform our relationship to power, to transform our relationship to pleasure, and the pursuit of pleasure to transform our relationship to how we use resources and energy. This path really invites us to develop inner resources so that we can bring the kind of balance and clarity and love to the very challenges we're facing. And if there's anything our world needs today, it's more people who can see clearly 
without getting consumed by a problem, without pretending it's not there, without sinking in despair. More of us who have the courage to face the adversity with love, which is what we're doing, right? That's what we're doing here every moment is we're, we're practicing meeting our human experience with love. Instead of getting lost in it, instead of rejecting it, instead of trying to control it and assert our dominance and power over what's happening, instead of running away and pretending, instead of it making it mean something about me and who I am and what I can or can't do, no. So just bring love. May this be well. It's a very powerful response. So this, one of the powers of metta, Greg also referred to it as like a, a purification, like this magnet. It, it pulls out that which is not metta. And this is just part of the process. It's not something gone wrong. It's like in order to learn balance, we have to be out of balance. In order to learn kindness and love, well, guess what? <laughs> we got to feel that which is not kind and loving. And it's through that process that we come to know this quality of metta. So we find ourselves, right, stuck in longing, feeling homesick, feeling grouchy, sleepy, being harsh with ourselves or hating others, feeling like there's a wall around the heart. You know, I was doing so well until I started practicing metta. And, and the, these states, these, these forces, they have a pull to them. It's like they're mesmerizing. Someone wrote a note asking, like, how do you deal with the curveballs in practice? Sometimes it feels like a tsunami, like a whole wave that overcomes us. And the way that we meet these energies in ourself can become a template for how we meet others for how we meet life, for how we meet the challenges that we're facing. Because what do we really have a say over? We can't control what's happening. Really the only jurisdiction we have is, is here, over the heart. So this practice becomes an offering that we can have a say about how we meet our experience. We can actually befriend our own mind. So I wanna to speak tonight about some of these challenges, some of these forces that get in the way. And we're fortunate to, um, to, to have the benefit of, of this path that many have walked down before before us. And what that means is like any other map, any other road map, they're landmarks, right? It's, you know, oh, there's a, there's a really nasty swamp over there. It smells terrible, <laughs> you know? So as you're going through your retreat, you're like, God, what is this? This is awful. It's like, oh yeah, that's the swamp, right? They said I'd come to a swamp. Great. I'm on the, I'm, on, I'm going the right direction. <laughs> if you didn't know there was a swamp there, you might be really confused. Like what's going on? This is self-loathing. Ah, this is aversion. 
So one of these maps that the Buddha pointed out are five particular places that we tend to get stuck. These five forces in our heart and our minds. And he used some very powerful analogies to describe these. He talked about them as being in debt, a debt you can never pay off. About being ill, having a disease, being enslaved, being in prison, or being lost in the desert without supplies. These are dire, the impact of these forces, when we don't know how to meet them. So these are the forces of craving, which is a heart that's not fulfilled, that has lost touch with its own sense of contentment, and so it's hungry, always seeking something. A heart that's diseased with aversion, hatred, ill will, animosity, and this is a heart that's devoid of kindness, that's soured, that bristles. Sloth and torpor. Right? This heavy, sleepy, apathetic feeling, a heart that doesn't have vigor. There's no vitality or restlessness. A heart that can't settle, that lacks ease, that's agitated, agitated. And doubt. Doubt's the killer. Doubt's a heart that lacks confidence can't rest in itself. So these five hindrances, as they're called, they, they can block our progress on the path. We, actually, we can actually get in the way of meditating. It's said that they overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. And we can see in ourself how they cause harm, how they eat away at our well-being, and then how they leak out towards others and cause harm in our relationships or in the world. So learning to, learning to handle these, learning to meet them, it's not only about our meditation practice because these are the forces that trip us up in our life. Right? When we're trying to do something, we keep getting distracted because the mind is restless or we keep procrastinating because there's no energy. Right? Or we get so angry, we can't focus or we're chasing after something and we lose our sense of purpose, or we get so consumed by self-doubt that we can't move, it paralyzes us. There's a powerful, uh, famous line in the, the Dhammapada, one of the uh, early texts, one of the most translated texts of the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha says, nothing can do you more harm neither a hater nor a robber nor a thief than your own untrained mind. And nothing can do you more good, neither a friend nor a parent, than your own well-trained mind. And so these forces are some of what we're training, some of what we're learning to handle. So the first of these is craving, wanting, greed, for particularly for sense pleasure, for something to fill us up. And this is our habitual response to pleasant feeling. When there's something pleasant, yeah, I like that, I want more. 
And it's that feeling. There's a, um, a play on words in, um, in Thai that Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, I don't actually know the Thai, but it, it sort of works in English too. It's, the word for craving in Pali is tanha. And so he says, tanha is a perpetual ah. <laughs> I want more. And this is, there's the whole range from like just a little yen, like a little nosh. I wonder if any more cookies left over from lunch, you know. Let's go to the dining hall and see. To um, like redecorating the office, you know. That desk would probably work better over there. Yeah, and then there'd be more room. The whole office would flow better, right? We're kind of like rearranging things in our mind to make it more pleasant. Or planning your next retreat. (laughs) Things are going well, you feel concentrated. It's like, oh yeah. I could probably use I could probably use that other vacation time to come back. I wonder if the schedule's open yet. I should probably look. Dang, I gave them my phone. I knew I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> the mind's like wanting, right? Wanting more of this feeling. So just like full blown lust or greed, right? Whether it's sexual fantasy or the ice cream parlor at home, like whatever it is that we're just gonna consume. And it can get kind of wacky on retreat, right? When there's like no distractions. All of our comforts and ways of soothing ourselves are not available, you know. It's, whether it's a cup of tea or a nap or maybe a shower or checking the board again. <laughs> wanting something to just feed on. Or sometimes just checking out. Right? Just just off fantasizing. I spent the whole session, I spent some time practicing Zen in Japan in my twenties. I spent the whole five day session just thinking about my girlfriend and when I was gonna see her next. <laughs> I learned something very important. It's a waste of time. I wasted five days. You know, retreat was over. It was like, whew, wow, look at that. Five days, gone. There's a cartoonist by the name of Ashley Brilliant who has a wonderful little cartoon that says, uh, I've given up my search for truth and now am looking for a good fantasy. (laughs) So craving can be like this. Sometimes it shows up around the meditation itself, right? It's like, we want some pleasant experience, like that radiant, bright feeling that Winnie was talking about, or you know, maybe I'll have that sweet, blissful, delicious sensation I had last time. Or the craving then moves into attachment, like Sharon was talking about, this near enemy of loving kindness where it starts becoming conditional. I'll love you if, right? May you find a new job. (laughs) May you get a job. May you be happy so I don't have to listen to you complaining all the time. So this craving is this endless search for something to fill us up. And as as I was saying, it's not just here, right? These forces in our own mind, they show up in the world and our whole economy is built 
on craving. The Buddha said, the world turns on craving. There's no river like the river of craving. There's a whole industry designed to convince us that we need to consume something to be happy. So craving's always about something that we don't have. And then the mind narrows and gets fixated on it, and then we lose sight of what's actually here. We lose connection with our own contentment. The Buddha used many vivid analogies to describe this. The one I mentioned, like being in debt, a debt that you can never pay off, right? No matter how much you feed that craving, it wants more. Or like a bucket with a hole in it. The more you put in, it just gets empty. He also compared it to um, a pond with beautiful colored dyes in it. We get mesmerized by the promise of some pleasure and then actually can't see through. So how do we meet this force in the mind? So the first step with any of these hindrances is always the same. And that's to try to notice it. To try to recognize, ah, this is craving. That's what's happening. It's not a problem. It doesn't mean anything about me. It's just part of the terrain. It's part of the practice. This is craving. So noticing it, recognizing it, starting to get a sense of what the signs are for craving. This kind of leaning forward. Sometimes it comes with a little bit of a buzz to it because there's that anticipation of something good that's coming, but it's not settled. Or there can be contraction. You notice your jaws tight. Or there's some tightness in the chest or, or the eyebrows. So it's kind of leaning forward. Or there's that, that narrative of if only. right? Like if only they'd stop moving. Like quiet. So the first is noticing it. And then the second step is how are you relating? Are we rejecting it or getting lost in it? Those are the two most common. We reject it. We blame ourselves. This shouldn't be happening. We make a whole story about it. Or we push it away. We reject it. Or we just feed on it. We just get consumed. We get lost in it. And so what would it be like to meet it with kindness? To have the courage to say, oh, this is craving. Can I bring some care to this? Sharon was talking earlier about sleepiness and the sense of playfulness. Can we bring a sense of curiosity and playfulness to these forces? So noticing it, how am I relating? Am I getting lost in it? Am I pushing it away? Can I meet it with kindness? So in loving kindness practice, we always have two options. When something takes us away from the loving kindness. So the first is just this basic capacity to acknowledge what's happening, kind of almost like bowing to it, like I see you craving, and to just let it be and come back to the phrases. You know, have a moment of kindness for the craving and then just to let it go and come back. This is one option, and this is kind of the go-to. If you can, see if you can just put it down. 
You have to push it away. Just let it be there and bring the attention back. Sometimes that doesn't work. And then obviously, and then the second option is to engage with it, to actually bring mindfulness to the experience of the hindrance. If it's too strong, if it's persistent, if it's not possible to put it down. So then there are many, many antidotes and skillful means that we can use to work with these hindrances. So for most of them, feeling it in your body. So disengage from the content, from the story, from the images, what will be, how it'll be, how what I want, how it's going to be when I get there. What's happening here? How's it actually feel to want something you don't have? What is that experience? If there's wanting, there's something pleasant. So look for the pleasant. Where's the hook? Is it a thought? Is it a memory? Is it a feeling in the body that you're chasing after, wanting to hold on to? What's, what's the pleasure that's hypnotizing the mind? And if we can be with it, if we can see it clearly, eventually the mind puts it down. It's also important we can bring wisdom to reflect on the experience of craving, to question the, the myth behind it. The story that the mind tells with craving is, this one, this one's going to do it. If I just had that, then I'd be happy. So, I mean, will it? Will it make us happy? Has it ever made us happy in some lasting way? Is that what happiness really is, getting what we want? When we do get what we want, how long does it last before we're on to the next thing? And how does it feel when we don't get what we want? So this force of craving, just starting to understand what it does to the mind and the heart, that it robs us of our sense of contentment. And it gives rise to jealousy, to greed, to envy, even to violence, right, in pursuit of pleasure. And we see how craving, how the force of craving, the unchecked pursuit of greed for more pleasure control and power is destroying destroying the planet, destroying communities. And we see it right here in our own mind. Oh, I want that. Become aware of it. Notice it. Can we meet it with kindness? And when we can, when we can bring kindness to this force, when we can put it down, what we're letting go of is that sense of emptiness, that sense of, of lack, of fulfillment. It's like paying off the debt. So the second one of these hindrances is the opposite. So cravings about going after the pleasant. Aversion, anger, hatred, ill will is about rejecting the unpleasant. It's our habitual response to unpleasant feelings. And again, there's the whole range from irritation to just sort of mildly being annoyed to frustration to anger to contempt or rage. So this force of ill will or animosity, this is the far enemy of kindness, right? This is the opposite of kindness. 
And again, it shows up in all kinds of ways on retreat. Like, why did they wear those pants to retreat? (laughs) Crackers again? You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) How much soup can you eat? Or you find yourself standing in line and seething with hatred for someone you don't even know. It's like, what's going on? So the mind is just sort of start to see as we strip away all of the distractions, how it just starts wheeling out of control sometimes. So it's important to acknowledge with, you know, with both desire, with both craving and with, with um, particularly with anger that um, there's, there are wholesome aspects to these energies and the words in English uh, don't capture the nuance that's there in the Pali. So, for example, sense craving is distinct from healthy desire, like the desire to help someone, right? or the desire to learn or grow, or um, the desire to cultivate compassion or generosity. So it's a healthy movement of wanting. That's different from this kind of hunger to consume. And the same thing with like anger. Like Sharon was talking about the Q&A the other day that anger is protective for human beings. So there's a force of protection and energy there. That's not what's meant here. What's meant is this force of ill will, of aggression with an intent to harm. And it's based on this belief, this deluded belief that we can eliminate the unpleasant through anger, through, uh, through hatred. That resisting experience or destroying it will somehow bring about peace. Again, the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, hatred never ceases through hatred. Only through love alone does hatred cease. This is an eternal law. And this force, this force of hatred, sometimes it goes out, and as we all know, sometimes it turns in, right? On ourself. You're worthless, you'll never get anywhere, you can't do it, there's something wrong with you, beating ourselves up. And then the results of that, of just having no energy and just feeling completely down. It also gets projected outwards. They hate me. Look at they hate me. I know they hate me. They don't like me. I can tell. I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done that. Right? I don't belong here. That's that same force of ill will in the mind that gets projected outward and sent back. It's very interesting what the psyche does. And it also shows up the other side of this hatred is fear. So this the hatred, the ill will is about destroying the unpleasant. It's aggression towards it, and the fear is the recoiling away from it. It's the same same force, just in an opposite direction. So the analogies the Buddha uses for this uh, aversion is um, like picking up hot coals to throw it at someone else, or picking up feces to throw it at someone else, right? Who gets hurt first? <laughs> Or like a pond of water boiling. You can't see through it. I'm blind with rage, that expression. We can't see when there's that roiling feeling of hatred. 
So this is the heart that's, that's soured, that's bristling. So this one's easier to spot than craving because it feels so terrible when we're caught in aversion or hatred. And again, when it comes up, to remember it's not a problem. It doesn't mean anything about you. It's just part of the terrain. How are we relating? Are we getting lost in it? Are we rejecting it, rejecting it or berating ourselves? Can we meet it with kindness? Oh, this is aversion. This is a hindrance. Can we bring some tenderness? It's painful. The kindness turns into compassion. There's more of that sense of holding it. So metta is the antidote to ill will. Hatred never ceases through hatred, but through love. Metta is the antidote to fear to both sides. The Buddha said this practice of metta is the only protection you'll ever need for the heart. Because it protects the heart from these forces. So recognizing the aversion is the first step to working with it. And then where do we go from there? So it might not mean offering metta to the person that you're angry with or that you're feeling this ill will towards. It might mean changing the recipient, going back to the benefactor or offering it to yourself. It might mean changing the tone of voice inside. And seeing if you can incline your heart back towards kindness. This is the, this is the go-to. Can I, can I come back in with kindness? And then if not, you try that, it's not working, then fall back to mindfulness. Feel it in the body. Can I feel this ill will just for a moment? How's this feel? Not forever, just for one moment. And then move away, go to the breath, go to your hands or your feet. Look for the hidden unpleasant sensation. If there's ill will or aversion or fear, there's something unpleasant the mind's reacting to. What is it? Kind of sense, sense. Bring wisdom to bear. What's the result of this ill will? How is this affecting my own heart? Sometimes it's so strong, we just need to step back, you know, take a walk, change the scenery, have a cup of tea, go out into the woods and just look at the trees, listen to the birds. They're not angry at anyone. (laughs) They're not judging. They're just doing the best they can to breathe and survive. It can remind us of that way of being. So craving and aversion are two sides of the same coin. It's the push and the pull with pleasant and unpleasant. And these are the, the attachments and aversion are the near and far enemies of loving kindness. The next two are about energy. The balance of energy and tranquility in the mind. So on the one hand, not enough energy, sleepy, heavy, apathetic, too much energy, restless, agitated, worried, can't settle. So the sloth and torpor, sometimes this shows up, the the phrases, we're like staying with the phrases, may you be free from suffering, may you be full of suffering, may you be full, no, 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 not full of suffering. It's kind of like, see that the words start to get turned around or the mind is sinking and heavy. The Buddha likened this to being in prison. Right? When there's no energy, we can't do anything. 
the heart doesn't have the, the vitality, or like a pond that's overgrown with algae. It's covered with this thick growth, so you can't see through. There's no clarity or awareness. So again, the first step, noticing it. Oh, this is, this is sleepiness, low energy, right? It's not a problem. It doesn't mean anything about us. It's just part of the practice. How are we relating? Are we judging ourselves? Are we pushing against it? Right? God, I'm so sleepy. Stop being sleepy. Stop being sleepy. Wake up, wake up. You know, prodding yourself, bringing more aversion, and now you've got two going at once. Like, great. <laughs> Can you just bring some kindness, right? Like, oh, this is sleepiness. It's okay. I think our culture is afraid of rest. Seriously. Just look around, you know. How many models of healthy, sustainable energy do we have in the body and in society, right? We don't, we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to use energy. We have the exploitation model, the extraction model. Burn it up as fast as possible. More caffeine, <laughs> right? We look for, we're looking for renewable energy in the practice, sustainable energy not energy that just burns up and then leaves us depleted. So the, the sloth and torpor, when there's low energy, some of it is just about our whole energy system being fried from our culture and from not knowing how to rest, not knowing how to work in a sustainable way. And so then we bring those same patterns into the practice. So recognizing it, oh, this is sleepiness, this is heaviness. How are you relating? And then all of the antidotes that we've talked about, you know, opening the eyes, standing up, hold your arms up. That's another good one. It's hard to fall asleep when you're holding your arms up. Don't worry, everyone else's eyes will be closed. I want to see. <laughs> you know, looking, looking at the light. Just letting some light in, splashing water on your face, walking briskly. And again, as Sharon was saying this afternoon, sometimes when all else fails, just rest, let yourself sleep. Sometimes even in the sitting, it's interesting. If you're really sleepy and you, you know, you're working with it, you're standing up, you hold your breath, you pull your earlobes, it's like, I'm being kind, I love you, it's okay, it's okay. You know, like, <laughs> let yourself sleep a little bit. Sometimes it's the, it's, it's the kind of the, the system just needs to like go down for a moment, for a few moments, and then something else lifts. I see it in my own practice all the time. I just let it go down. And there's this moment of rest, something settles, and then the awareness can lift again from a different place. So with the metta, Again, we can, we, can, we can sharpen the loving kindness to bring more energy. We can connect with the meaning of the phrases, reconnect with the sincerity of the wish, the genuineness of the intention. You can sharpen the visual image in your mind. All of these will help to bring energy into the practice. Energy comes from the heart. It comes from a willingness to be here, and we can stay up and 
really late watching a movie, talking to a friend, reading a book, right? Even when we're tired, because we want to, right? Because there's willingness, there's interest. So we want to find that same quality of willingness and interest in the practice, in the moment. What's it like? When we're interested, then there's energy. There can be other causes too to the uh, to this to this low energy. If you're getting tired, you might also look at how you're practicing. You know, are you too tight, too rigid? That's going to burn up a lot of energy. Are you trying to produce a feeling, trying to create some metta? That'll tire you out. <laughs> so just readjusting your effort, trying to find that balance. And sometimes it's mental. It's uh, the, the, the sloth is the physical. The torpor can be this, um, I forget which is which. One is physical and then the other is the mental, this sort of apathy of like, oh God, I don't want to do this. I just don't want to bother. Forget it. That, that no, no will in the mind I just don't care, I need a break. It's a kind of mental exhaustion. And so there too, like inclining towards kindness, that's not a pleasant state. It's a state of suffering, that that apathy in the mind. So can you bring some kindness, some tenderness to it? It's okay. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to not want to be here. Can there be kindness with that? So then the opposite, the restless energy, this agitation, too much energy, anywhere but here, right? Sometimes it's like you want to jump out of your skin. It's so intense. So this is an imbalance. There's too much energy and not enough tranquility. Sometimes when we get sleepy, it can be because there's too much concentration and not enough energy. The two aren't balanced. So you, you can check that, see. If the mind's quite calm, it might just be that you need to bring in a little more energy. Or if there's a lot of energy, it's not enough tranquility. How do you bring in more calm? And finding a balance between these factors. So it shows up physically, the restlessness in the body. It can show up mentally, planning, 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 worrying, rehearsing scenarios, anxiety, to-do lists, this way that we're addicted to being busy. And so the mind gets scattered and driven and jumpy. It can't settle. And we, we lose the sense of presence and intimacy with ourself and with life when there's that incessant busyness. So the Buddha compared this to being enslaved. That's a powerful analogy. Restlessness, agitation continually being pulled around by something else and not having that sense of agency or autonomy. Or like the pond, the surface of the pond is, uh, has like wind rushing, rushing over it and the water doesn't settle. And so the delusion here is, is like if I, on the mental level, it's like if I just plan enough, right, I'll be able to control it, the outcome. Or if I just worry enough, it won't happen. 
Or if I do just a little bit more, then I'll be able to rest. Then it'll finally be done. Have you noticed that doesn't end? There's a Tibetan teaching. It's, it's quite, quite to the point on this. It says, activities don't cease by completing them. <laughs> they cease when you stop. This gets to that heart of restlessness. One of the uh, epithets in the early canon for achieving awakening is what is to be done has been done. What is to be done has been done. Sounds pretty good, huh? (laughs) The mind is at rest. That restlessness of consciousness always moving towards or away from something has ceased and awareness rests. So with just as with all the other hindrances, the first antidote is to be aware of it, to notice it. Instead of being caught and spinning, 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 jittery, jittery. Oh, this is restlessness. It's not a problem. It doesn't mean anything about me. It's just part of the path. It's part of the terrain. How am I relating? Can I bring kindness to bear? So sometimes that we can be trying too hard, putting too much energy in, and that can also get us amped up. Sharon was talking about the right aim with the practice. It's just that that sense of just one phrase at a time. There's the wholeheartedness of just one phrase. That's the sustainable energy. It's just one step at a time. So if there's restlessness, you can try simplifying the phrases. Just bring it to one word. Change the pace of the phrase. See what's it like to slow it down a little bit or have a pause between each phrase, or just let the phrases go and rest back into the intention of kindness, sort of shifting to the, to the vibe, the kind of the space of metta itself. And again, if none of those work, if turning to the metta, the restlessness, the agitation keeps going, then use, use, use mindfulness. So become aware of the experience, Notice how it feels in your body. Try to widen. It's too much energy. Get big. Go to sound. Go to space. Go stand outside. Look at the sky. It's widening, giving that energy space to just roll on. You can call to mind a a restful place in your imagination. You know, a calm, still lake. Go walk down to the pond. So bringing in the antidote. So craving and aversion, the push-pull. Sloth and torpor and restlessness, this imbalance of energy in the body or the mind. And then the last, doubt. I can't do it. It's too hard. Why did I come here? What did I get myself into this time? Is this some kind of a cult? (laughs) They're trying to brainwash me. Are these daily affirmations? 
Should I stay with the benefactor or the friend? I should probably do myself. No, no, they said where it's easiest. Should I say be happy or feel happy? (laughs) Which is better? Who are these people anyway? What do they know? They're just, just spinning. So doubt's the heart that lacks confidence. And it turns, it, it goes out to the teachers, to the practice, to oneself, right? I can't do it. I'm doing it wrong. Everyone else is getting it, except for me. I'll never get anywhere. Does that familiar? <laughs> the frequent visitor and the practice. And this is like, this is like being stranded in the desert with no supplies. This one's the real danger because doubt can stop us from practicing, can actually get us off the path. Sometimes it shows up as like always checking. How am I doing? Am I more loving? Yeah. Always evaluating how the practice is going instead of just practicing. So we're, we're, we're assessing, we're wondering, we're kind of checking all the time. One of my first teachers, I was doing this in my own practice, and he said, he said, he said, you're always checking. He says, like, you take one step, and then you look. Did I take a step? Am I on the path? Did I take a step? <laughs> so just practice. <laughs> so the, the delusion with doubt is that um, we can arrive at some kind of firm clarity and certainty through thinking. That if we just think about it enough, if we just follow the doubt and play it out enough, we'll get clear. But it's a different kind of information that we need usually. The best place to judge the practice and evaluate, like, is this working, is not while you're doing it. (laughs) Like, give it your all. Just do the practice and let it work. And then after the retreat. Then you reflect back and say, okay, how was that? How did that help? Is this useful? So there, there, there never, there should never be any doubt about the teachings or the practice itself. Sometimes what's needed is to clarify something like, I I don't understand, right? Like, should I have an image in my mind or not? Or am I just using the phrases? So sometimes it's actually about checking with one of the teachers or one of the teachers in training and like, can I get some more information? I'm not sure about this piece. And if so, then it's really important to ask. But the doubt that just keeps going, that just keeps spinning, that keeps us from actually being able to settle in and practice, that's the one we want to watch out for. My first teacher, Manindraji, used to say, learn to see doubt as doubt. Learn. Learn to see doubt as doubt. It's just a force in the mind. That's all. It's just a thought. It's just like a passing, a passing wave. So with the metta, 
coming back to the simplicity of it and making it really concrete, you know? How does it feel when someone gives you a hug? How does it feel when someone says something kind? There's no doubt there, right? How does it feel to see an old friend? That's metta, just that warmth. There's nothing to doubt. So that one of the antidotes to doubt is it's like our, our direct experience. Root yourself in, in what's actually happening now in your own body. Feel its weight. Feel the temperature. Connect with the feeling of kindness. In this moment, that's enough. So all five of these hindrances are visitors. Craving, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, sloth, torpor, doubt. The first response is just to see if you can be aware of it, just to recognize it. Oh, this is, this is a hindrance. It's not a problem. It doesn't mean anything about us, about the practice. And then how are you relating? Are you getting lost in it? Are you rejecting it, judging yourself, blaming making it mean something. What would it be like to just meet it with kindness? This practice takes a lot of courage. Courage and and a, a kind of gentle perseverance, like Greg was saying last night, being in it for the long haul, to just keep showing up On this auspicious evening, commemorating the awakening of the Buddha, his birth, his life, the gift that he offered to the world through his awakening. And we can remember the potential that he realized, the the offering that he makes, which is of a freedom that's not dependent on conditions. That's not dependent on getting what we want or having things go our way. The refuge, the freedom, isn't in having some pleasant experience that's just going to pass. It's not in the conditions of our life. It's in how we meet what's happening. It's in the relationship. And regardless of what we're experiencing, Any of it, grief, loss, fear, anguish, confusion, pain, all of it. It's connecting with the truth of that experience. That's where the heart learns kindness. That's where we have the potential to offer our heart. Say, may this be well. So you don't you don't have to make anything happen. It's enough to just be here just the way you are. Just one moment at a time. And and we're strengthening that capacity to meet experience with kindness.
with warmth. And it's in that meeting that something transformative happens, that we start to sense a different potential that's not about control, that's not about domination. It's about something deeper. It's about touching the earth, it's about belonging. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.